I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Lore Watch, a roundtable freeform discussion about lore in the games of Blizzard Entertainment. I'm your host, Joe Perez, one of several lore aficionados from Blizzard Watch, and I've got my fantastic co-host with me today, Matt Rossi. How are you doing today, Rossi? Apparently, I've been hit by cosmic rays and I'm just waiting to find out what powers I get. Well, I mean, what powers would you want if you were to get any powers? Oh, don't ask me what I want, because what I want are like the standard, you know, you know, easy ones. But I'm interested in seeing what you, you know, the thing about the Fantastic Four that always got to me was they're kind of like, they're sort of like the four elements, but they're the four elements. The only one who's like strictly one-to-one to his element is Johnny, who, you know, bursts into flame. But Sue is kind of the air elemental because she's invisible, but her powers are not air-based. And the thing, I mean, he He's starts off kind of... The thing is, is when he really started off, he, he wasn't drawn like to have Rocky hide. He was drawn to have like pebbly, possibly dinosaurian hide. And it wasn't until later that they made him more actually rock. Um, that was always interesting to me. And Reed, I mean, Reed stretches. He's kind of the water guy, but it isn't. It is not one for one. So I've always thought that was interesting. Like you can take the elemental approach, but wow, we really have nothing to do with with the Blizzard Entertainment. Right? <laughs> let's, let's, let's move on. Let's, well, we do have plenty of questions from our li- readers and listeners, so thank you very much out there for everybody who submitted. As always, if you have questions for this show or, or any of our other podcasts uh, that are out there floating into the wonderful void of your ears, uh, be sure to send them to podcast at blizzardwatch.com and just specify which one it is for. First up, hello, I recently discovered you guys, and I'm hooked. Usually not the podcast type, but Lore Watch is exactly what I've been looking for. Just wanted to thank y'all for giving us this knowledge and entertaining experience. Well, you're welcome out there. My question, with Sylvanas no longer being the figurehead of the Forsaken, what cultural and aesthetic changes do you think are in store for them? Will the Edgelorian motifs and dynamics that seem to be fostered by the Dark Ladies will remain? 
Or will Kalia, assuming she will become their leader, uh, will her will in issue a new era uh, of our formerly beloved, uh, f- wow, formerly beloved, kick for pun. Uh, thank you. This is from Baylor the Lightbringer, Blood Elf Paladin, Anakama. Uh, so that's a that's actually an interesting question. How do you think the aesthetic, if it will at all, change now that uh, sort of the grim dark leader is no longer there? They're gonna double down. Do you think skulls they're gonna on down? everything? They're gonna put skulls on skulls. No, no, I. This is something I've honestly never really thought about because if you look at it, Sylvanas didn't. When you when you went from if you if you're playing WoW Classic now or if you played WoW back in the old days. In, in original WoW and in BC, there was a specific kind of look for the undead. And it was basically just human stuff, but really badly kept up. It was like, like you'd go to Taran Mill, and Taran Mill was basically just, if you if you go to um, the Stratholm dungeon, the, in, the, in the, uh, the, the Caverns of Time, and you go to like you know you, when you eventually end up going to Tyre Mill, it just looked like barns and farms and stuff. It was just it was very similar to the buildings in South Shore, and then they just made it dilapidated. But then, come to Wrath of the Lich King, and the the Forsaken built their own base up in Howling Fjord, and that base looked very different from how they used to look. Mm-hmm. It was extremely exaggerated, and that look became the look of every undead settlement. Like after Wrath of the Lich King, I believe it was in Cataclysm, when they did the Cata revamp, that look from, from Howling Fjord was suddenly, it was suddenly brought back to, to like, you know, the Eastern Kingdoms. And like Brill and Taran Mill and all that stuff took on that look. That wasn't the look they had before. So that was an evolution that's always been interesting to me because that means it was deliberate. They decided we know, you know what? We're leaning into this whole, we're corpses thing. We're, we're going to, we're straight up. We're not just going to live in buildings that are falling apart anymore. We're going to build things that look like this, that emphasize this. This is the look we're going for. And it was unique. And it was a new look that they brought to, that they brought in themselves. And Sylvanas didn't do that. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to take anything away from Sylvanas, but amongst her many talents, interior or exterior decorating are not among them. Sylvanas Windrunner did not go to Brill and say, oh, yeah, make it look creepy. That's, that's just not what happened. So I feel myself thinking, I don't know that it'll change much because this is something that they came up with. It wasn't just her. It was everybody. But, I mean, I don't know. What do you think? So this is an interesting thing because I'm wondering... I'm wondering how much actually was from Sylvanas's rhetoric, right? Like you mentioned that it's an evolution. Totally get that. 100% understandable. I agree. Um, it's one of those things where I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. Everything she said, everything that she would, when you would interact with her in the early ver- portions of the game, it was sort of, I don't want to say, dark and and dreary but it really it was because she was sort of in this place where what is life but this you know but torment you know there there is no escape from it and it had this very i don't want to say heavy metal feel to it but it had this very like dark 
gravitas to it. So now you start going into the architecture. Of course, there's going to be sort of that reflection because architecture reflects the culture that creates it in whatever capacity it is. That's sort of just one of the tenets of it. No matter where you go in in the world, no matter where you go in the history of, of the real world, anywhere you go that the, the world is architecture is, is informed by those cultures. So that became sort of their culture, the, the, the skulls on skulls, the, the very deliberate almost appropriation of what was the, you know, traditionally lich kingish or scourge ish in like structures, uh, because they definitely did. So with Kalia taking over, which I think is pretty much a far foregone conclusion at this point, I think we'll, we'll officially see that happen relatively soon. I'm wondering if they're going to go back to more their roots of human or humanity based architecture. Are those buildings going to no longer have skulls and spikes and and sort of have this very obvious death motif? Will it have more of that? I don't want to say like respect, but like that, that sort of we were once alive. We are still alive this is who we are. We haven't lost who we are sort of aspect to it. Cause that seems to be what Kali is all about, right? Like reclaiming the glory of, of these people's former lives. Like if you read before the storm, that's what her concern is helping them be their best selves, not letting them languish, not letting them, you know, be in pain and mourning and be out of touch with the rest of the world. And that's part of what their architecture does too. It sort of separates them from everything else. Cause it's not like the huts in, in buildings of the torn or even the traditional orc structures. It's not anywhere close to uh, the Blood Elves or even the High Mountain. It, none of that. Like, all of those could feel, I don't want to say, like, they feel almost welcoming if you go to them for with varying degrees. But, like, you find a yurt that has, you know, open flap and a, a warm hearth in the middle of it. You're going to feel a lot more comfortable than, well, this is this weird skull temple thing that has a vat of acid in the middle of it. Yeah, that, that seems homely. So I'm wondering if she's going to start shifting that perception, if we are going to start seeing a motif change, especially because they don't really have a place to go right now. So it's, and that's the other interesting aspect of it to me. Undercity's gone. It's completely, like, scourged out essentially at this point it's they can't go back nothing living or dead can live there so what do they do do they find a way to clean that up and rebuild it do they find another place to settle down roots and create their own brand new city because i don't think they're going to stay in orgrimmar very much at this point i I mean if you walk around orgrimmar you see that their tensions are high right like you can sit inside the bank at orgrimmar and all of a sudden, like you have one of the goblins screaming that this undead is a, you know, Sylvanas loyalist, and they literally said nothing. So, like, are they going to want to stay there? No, they're probably going to want to find their own place. So, do they build their own city? Do they build their own version of what Lordaeron was? Do they do they find a new place to settle down roots? And when they build it, is it going to be more like Eastern Kingdom humans' architecture? I think it will be. I think they're, we're going to see a drop in sort of that you know, embracing of death. But that's what I think. Who knows? We'll, we'll find out soon. I'm sure. Because like I said, I think they're going to have to find a place to go. I think they're going to have to find a place to settle down. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't think it's going to be uh, I don't think it's going to be an Orgrimmar. Next up, we have greetings, all knowing dual blades of lore. Sorry for the long email. I just had some questions that have popped into my head in the last month and I've always seen, always forget to send them in. 
So we pushed back the final old god, you say. Something doesn't add up. The corruption of Norizdomu is supposed to be part of the true timeline because he'd seen his death at the hands of us. Are we no longer in the true timeline, or will uh, or will Murazan reveal that he's been corrupted and pull a time heist and bring the old gods from the past to be waiting for us when we finish in the Shadowlands? Uh, I think we're going to take, tackle these one by one just because there are quite a few in here, so we'll start with that one. What do you think about that? Oh, I've been saying all along we haven't beaten anything. Oh, yeah. First off, um, Nyalotha is not a real place. It does not exist. It's like a virtual place. And when we go in there, we are effectively making it real. And using the the forge to destroy Nizoth was exactly what he wanted from the beginning. He corrupted the forge. He was trying to get us to use it this whole freaking time. Um, secondly, we haven't even killed any of the other old gods. Neither Cthulhu nor Yogg are dead. Mm-hmm. If, we, if we'd actually killed Yogg, half of Northrend would have collapsed. Yogg's body reaches through that whole area. You, there's, there's pieces of, you know, Yogg Saran's blood can be found across Northrend. Yep. It's in Sholazar. It's, you know, it's everywhere. It's in Howling Fjord. It's it's in Borean Tundra. Grizzly Hills. It's in, it's in Grizzly Hills. It's in the glacier. It's in Storm Peaks. It's everywhere. It's throughout that continent. No, he ain't dead. Neither of them are dead. Uh, at best, we've inconvenienced them. Popped like a popped one small part. The small piece of Cthulhu that was coming up in Encourage. Maybe we've killed that. Um, but no, they're not dead. Absolutely not. And they're not they're not caged anymore either. Uh, if anything, we're going to end up with three old gods. What Nazoth seems to have been going for was to make himself the dominant one while the other two were regenerating or dormant or whatever they're doing. Much like he was dormant for thousands upon thousands of years and he was still doing stuff while he was dormant. You know, the whole Emerald Nightmare, that was him. He was doing that while he was dormant. They're, yeah, no, they're not gone. Absolutely not. Yeah, I agree, and and we've we've heard them say as such like during BlizzCons of past and and things like that. We've defeated them. We haven't killed them. Um, we've maybe put them into another state of hibernation, but they're still there. There, and when they wake up, their chains have have definitely been either broken or weakened. To even when we were in Cataclysm and Cho'Gal was working for the Twilight's hammer, mm-hmm. he was saying the master. And the master he was talking about was Cthulhu. Yep, it was not Nazoth. Not, not, not Nazoth. So, yeah, and I mean, so we are going to see them again at some point. Will we have an idea of how to deal with them? Who knows? But I don't think we've seen the last of them. So we are still, I think, in the true timeline, and everything will still happen as it's supposed to happen. Like Murazon will become a thing, just because that is what inevitably will happen. And that is like like Matt said, the the old gods are not dead. Uh, we just kind of defeated them temporarily, which seems to be what we do best. Uh, second part of that qu- second part of the questions here: We have so called Titan Petri dishes to the south, the Vale, north Sholazar, and the east Ungoro. Seems like the western area doesn't have much except Aldemen. Why do you think that is? I mean, reorigination seems to be Stranglethorn Vale. Yeah, we do have Stranglethorn Vale. And keep in mind, um, the when you go to Stranglethorn Vale, it bash, especially if you're in Wild Classic, go ahead and go down, you will find troll records of the coming of the Titans. Mm-hmm. 
the trolls of Stranglethorn Vale saw the Titans come. Now, what do they mean? What is, what is it that they're actually referring to? What, is, what happened? We don't know. But we do know, one of the things we know is that at some point, uh, one of the Naraki, uh, the Chithraxi in particular, ended up in what is now Stranglethorn. And it was his awakening that created the, the Trolla Queer War. And it happened in that area. Now, it's quite possible he was attempting to go to another Titan facility, to possibly to wake up in Nazoth, because Nazoth, if you look at the, at the old map of ancient Kalimdor, when the old gods and the, uh, the elemental lords controlled it, Nazoth controlled what is now the Eastern Kingdoms. That was Nazoth's territory. So the base that, you know, keep in mind, when we go to Ashara's Eternal Palace, it wasn't in, you know, it was one time on the surface. That palace where we go and find Nazoth trapped, that might have been considered part of the Eastern Kingdoms. That might be the Titan base that would have been in that area. It went underwater. And the land around it, Stranglethorn Vale, stayed up. So that that's one possibility anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a uh, a possibility that Stranglethorn Vale could be one of those Petri dishes. Um, but I, I can see where people would want would not qualify it because it doesn't have quite the same protections in place that we see in like Undergrowth yeah, or Sholazar. If that goes if that went underwater, then that's why those protections are gone. Um for that matter, I mean, we only we don't see the veil. The veil doesn't have any such protections. Yeah. Go look at the veil of the blossoms. It does not have Titan pylons protecting it. The Angoro and Sholazar do. The only two petri dishes, the only two actual established petri dishes, are Angoro and Sholazar. We know that the Titans were doing something in Pandaria, but we don't know if it was considered one of their petri dishes. Yeah, and with. Uh... I don't want to say Stranglethorn. It could have been much the same thing, too, though. Like, we don't know the true purposes of those troll temples that were built. We haven't fully explored them. We don't know what uh, they were doing in those areas, because like you said, the trolls definitely have records of seeing the Titans come. Who knows what happened there? Uh, So there's a lot of, I don't want to say history that was lost there, but there's a lot of things that could be easily explained. And we've seen that trolls their citadels can be Titan facilities. We literally have that in this expansion. Well, what if any of those temples like Zulgurub or anything like what if deeper, deeper, deeper into those places, why they were so culturally important is that they were something to do with, you know, Titans mucking about, or what if the Titans gifted them things or gave them things to help them in their, their battles against, you know, future bug incursions. Because if you go down there, like in Stranglethorn, there's not, any bugs not like not like the akir not like the naraki they're not there like why they seem to be able to go everywhere else why aren't they in stranglethorn vale so it's entirely possible and po- entirely probable that there's something there helping them keep keep those forces at bay Let's see. The last question is more one of those random thoughts that popped into my head. I thought, what if the Jailer and Amunthul were brothers in the same world, and Amunthul absorbed all the life energy, so his brother, the Jailer, died before being born, and that's how we got the Jailer? Huh. I don't know about that one. What do you, what do you go ahead? What do you think? 
Um, what do you mean by brothers in the same world? Like the jailer is like some kind of anti-Titan. What if the Titans were twins, I guess would be the best way to put it. Like what if they were both the same shown shorn from the same world soul? That's interesting. I don't, I don't have, it's not something that occurred to me. Um, I don't really know that that's possible. I don't know what they've wanted to establish for Titans. I honestly feel like they don't want, they don't want this to be Titan related. This is its own thing, but I don't know. We'll see. We will find out in a few months. It, it's an interesting theory. I mean, there's nothing. Uh, the other side of that is it could be something that maybe Amonthul being born since he was the first to wake up caused that to happen. Or it could have happened before Amonthul was ever, you know, a nascent Titan. We don't know. the the pro- that, And I think that's sort of the, the fun of it. Like, we talked about this a little bit before. Part of the reason I'm really excited about Shadowlands and the Jailer is it's new. It's something that we've had little snippets of in the past, but we don't really have anything concrete. Like one of the things with the Titans, like we have three volumes of Chronicles and most of them have things that deal with Titans in some capacity. This is the first thing that largely might have nothing to do with Titans, but also rival them in scope of power or reach. And it's interesting to me because that's that's fresh. That's exciting. That's something that, like, the Jailer's a character we know nothing about. We have no history with him, or at least we don't yet. That might change. That might be something we find out later on. But for right now, I'm kind of okay with them not being linked. If they were linked in some capacity, uh, I think that would be, I, I don't want to say anticlimactic. It would not be my first choice. But it is an interesting food for thoughts. So thank you for all those questions. This is from Chris Happen, uh, one of our patron supporters from Spinebreaker. So thank you very, very much. Next one. Hello, y'all. I was thinking about allied races, and the main question I came up with was, how do you think allied races will move forward with Shadowlands? Will Blizzard continue introducing them? If so, how will that work with all the factions in the Shadowlands being spirits? And this is from Lowe's or Loez on uh, Materon. What do you think? Well, I mean, first off, just because we're in the Shadowlands expansion doesn't mean that all the new allied races, if we get if we get any, would have to be from those factions. Uh, we got the Dark Iron Dwarves and the, the Maghar Orcs in, in Battle for Azeroth, neither of which were particularly related to the story of that expansion. We also got, you know, the Mechanomes and the Volpera, who were sidereally involved at best. Um, so it's possible, but we don't know. I think that they're definitely not... They've not talked about any allied races yet for Shadowlands. And I get the sense that they're not not—they're not throwing it away, but they probably aren't going to introduce any, at least for the beginning of the expansion. I feel like, for first off, they want to see if anything really shows up as being super important to us. If any, like anything, like everybody goes, Oh God, these guys are great. I want to play as them, that sort of thing. But I also think just because this is the Shadowlands expansion doesn't mean that everything's a spirit. They live in another realm of existence. It doesn't make them ghosts. Um, I can't remember the name of the bird people are off the top of my head. Oh, the, ba- the ones from Bastion, the owl folks. Yeah. But they're very clearly owl people. They're not owl ghosts. They're not spirits. They're people. 
Um, and that actually also seems to be the case for the Kyrians. The Kyrians aren't dead. Like, if you die and end up in the Shadowlands, you can become a Kyrian, but the Kyrians are not necessarily dead, at least not the ones who are actually Kyrians. Um, so there's a lot of back and forth here. And for that matter, we've got undead already as a perfectly accepted race in WoW. You could always have, you know, spirit people as playable characters. Nothing really stopping you. I mean, the Ethereals exist, and they're not even... They're, like, they're constantly being bandied about as an allied race, and they're literally just bandages wrapped around energy. So I think it can get pretty out there. But I, I don't think they're going to stop doing allied races, but I do think they're probably not going to be doing... We're, we're probably not going to get six per expansion like we, we did this time. Um, I, I don't... It's also, do you really count the four that we got at the end of Legion as Legion, or do, are they BFA? Because the feature was technically for BFA. Yeah, um, I, I don't know how to count that one. I mean, I if, guess I would. I personally would kind of count them Legion. Yeah, so if you count those as Legion, and Legion we got four, uh, and Battle for Azeroth we got six. So that's ten allied, you know, ten allied races have been added to the game. Five per faction. I don't know that we need any more anytime soon. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not going to say they're never going to do another one. I doesn't I feel like this is something that they added to the game so they would be, have the freedom to use it if and when they want to use it. I don't feel like they want to make it into every expansion will get four new allied races because how how fast would that we're already up to twice as many races as we used to have just two expansions ago. Yep. Now granted in a lot of cases they're not really they're cosmetic redos of existing races. Like for instance Lightforged. They're just you know flashier Draenei. Uh, Nightborn, they're just night elves, down to their animations. They just have different ears, and they look a little different. They're basically just night elves. Void elves, they are. They're. They. They even used to be blood elves. They're so blood, just blood elves. They're like purple blood elves. That's what they are. So some of them, like dark iron dwarves, not a lot of change between them. Maghar orcs just have more cosmetic options. A lot of them are really just reskins. And there's there's a little difference, but it's not as none not as many of them as are as detailed and involved as mechanomes or Volpera or and even then mechanomes and Volpera. Mechanomes are just gnomes. Yep. And Volpera yep. are the goblin skeleton more or less. Yep. So yeah, I I don't know. I, I don't think we're gonna see any right away. I wouldn't be surprised if around like, you know, nine point one or nine point two we might get one. Depending on how people like take what they get in Shadowlands, how much they, they enjoy it. Uh, but but I'll leave it to Joe now to talk. Yeah, and I think that's a big part of it. And I think I think Matt hit the the nail on the head there. I think that when this was introduced, it was it it was to be used as a tool to to as they see fit. Basically, when when the community outcry or need or desire is there for something to be added in. I don't think we're done with allied races. I think that they there will probably still be more that get added throughout the the history or the long life of this game, but I do think it's going to slow down a little bit. And I think, you know, if we get two allied races in an expansion, that's that's pretty good, right? And not not nearly at the speed that we've been getting them. And that said, I think a lot of it's going to to rely heavily on how we as players look through uh, these races and interact with them and also partially how the story evolves with these races. Um, the idea that what we're going to be interacting with are purely spirit. 
I think Matt's also right about that. Nothing said they're ghosts. Nothing said they're spirits. Nothing says that they they aren't alive, quote unquote. As a matter of fact, there are several things that point to that. This is just a different realm of existence. And if we've learned anything from the history of Warcraft, things exist on multiple different planes. I mean, hell, look at Karazhan. Karazhan itself exists at multiple different planes of existence. So, like, we're used to this. And nothing says that, you know, if the story leans that way or the player desire leans that way, that these races that we are interacting with can't transition over or cross over to the rest of the world. We are doing this exactly this in reverse going into Shadowlands. We are moving into another realm of existence being carried over, being ferried over uh, through the Death Knights, essentially. They're helping us get through. Well, if Death Knights can exist on both planes and can move things back and forth, what's to say they can't go the other way? Why can't they pull, you know, those little bastion owl people over or whatever the case is? So I don't think we've seen the end of it, and I think that we will... A lot of it will be determined on how the story goes and how players really truly react to everything that happens uh, with these races in Shadowlands. Next up. Hey there, Joe and Matt. I hope you're doing well. I am. I hope you are as well, person. Uh, I have a question that I've been rolling around in my head ever since we started doing the Visions and the Nihilotha raid. Blizzard seems to have settled on the idea that Nihilotha isn't actually a real place, but a totally different dimension that operates under Nazoth's rules. How do we justify us coming in and using all sorts of magics in there? As a disciplined priest, I'm calling upon the light in a place that is A, purely of the void, and B, not even in the same universe as Azeroth. My druid, in turn, would use the power of the sun, moon, and stars, and a shaman, the elements. Heck, even a mage would need to draw from the arcane powers that belong to the Universal Order. These are all forces that do not seem to come into play in Azos realm, or is there a lore justification that I'm missing? When Gul'dan, for example, taunts Tyrion that the light can't reach him on the Broken Shore, this is false, since the light is one of those two primordial building blocks of the universe, but I don't see how all of our magics would work in a realm that is not even real and so far beyond the comprehension of mortal minds. Love the show, you guys are the best. Kind regards, Noena Drenai Priest. I'll let you start in on this one. You want it to work. Mm-hmm. Everything is based on perception. Remember when we go fight, when you fight Rathion in the first fight, you're fighting Rathion. You're fighting him really hard, and then suddenly it isn't Rathion. It never was. It's all based on perception. You expect it to work. And that's all Nazoth wants you to expect it to work. He wants you to go approach this just as you would anything else. He's been You're the chosen one. He has been choosing you and grooming you from the beginning for this. Especially if you didn't get rid of the eye. If you didn't get rid of the eye, then you are absolutely his plaything. But even if you did get rid of it, or like me, didn't finish the quest on purpose so you never got it, um, he chose you. He picked you out. He's grooming you. This is all for his benefit. He wants you to believe you won. He wants Magni to believe you won. Because what's the best way to get around all this pesky opposition? To get them to believe they're done and stop fighting him. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, too, is to remember we are in a place built of the void. And what is the void, if nothing but the embodiment of all possibilities? And among those possibilities is very clearly the possibility that magic works, that the well, elements plus, can I mean, reach your call. Here's one thing for, in terms of the light thing, too. The void and the light don't exist without each other. 
They can't. In fact, in, in the WoW cosmology, light existed first. And the void is what com comes when the light eddies and war has dark spots within it. The void is a reaction to the light. It can't exist without it. If you, ha if you have the numberless thousand truths, if anything is possible, then that one thing that you don't want to be possible is still possible. The, the void inherently has the light within it. It can't escape it. It will forever be connected to it. Yeah, and priests are a great example of that because they can touch on both the void and the light with equal measure, right? Like you have shadow priests for a reason. You have, like if you're a disciplined priest, you're calling upon those forces the same way you would any other, you know, force. But I, I, I think it's it goes with the whole, this is a realm of imagination, right? It's not necessarily something that's completely devoid or, or removed from the universe as a whole. This is something where belief is what springs power. And that's something that Nazoth's always been about. Like, ever since we started interacting with him uh, or them throughout this entire expansion, it's always this belief, this you think this, you feel this, you believe this, and therefore it is type situation. Now you're in a realm purely built off of that. And it doesn't necessarily have to be outside of the universe. It could be a pocket dimension. We know that those exist. Again, see Karazhan. We it's where reality distorts, but reality still touches it. And in the Nazoth fight, in the very, very final thing, and this is something where game mechanics sort of also uh, inform this, as you're encountering and fighting him, one of the things that happens around you is the realm shifts. The realm shifts in such a way that pieces of it sort of slough away. And one of the things that you get a really, really clear vision of if you look up, which I know a lot of players don't do, but seriously, look at the walls during that fight. You see the heart chamber, a place that exists within reality because this is layered right on top of it. So Nazoth bends that, uses that, and turns all that to make his realm, his his idealistic future, his idealistic world in which he exists, his recreation of the Black Empire, which is just basically an overlayer filter over reality. So, of course, all of these elements can still touch there. Of course, there's all these things. Look at look at even just doing the invasions, right? Doing Going to the veil in particular. If you go to the veil while it's being invaded, one of the things you see are nightmare elementals. These are spirits that are running around that have been touched by the void. They're still elementals. They still have air attacks, water attacks, fire attacks, earth attacks. They're still calling upon these primordial forces, but they've been touched by this vision of Nazoth. So if those can exist and those can exist in this other pockets of reality, when you go through those uh, little obelisk, eyeball obelisk things, I don't even know what to call them, gates, and you go into this vision, this small, tiny pocket of vision, they're still there too, because this is just a filter, an overlay of his belief, his expression of what it should be over reality. So very clearly, or at least to me, it, it seems to reason that all of our powers would still work. We believe that they will work. We have strong beliefs in those powers, those elements. But even then, they exist there in that dimension or in that overlay of reality, because Nazoth uses them too. So that that's my two cents on it. <laughs> All right, moving on. This one is... Wow, this is another long one. 
more of an opinion question than anything else. Have any has anything been mentioned or do you have any theories about how the night elves 10,000 years of virtual immortality will have affected their position in the Shadowlands? From what I understand, when souls go to the Shadowlands, they both bring um, along anima, uh, the Shadowlands fuel source, and also some degree of their personalities. So if the Shadowlands are full of the souls that departed, how should the fact that the night elves have spent the past 10,000 years with uh, with a death rate uh, a tiny fraction of everyone else's be reflected. I would imagine that it would mean the night elves and the realms that they would most likely gravitate towards would be noticeably weaker as a faction than others. Or alternately, could the relative scarcity of night elf souls mean they have proportionally greater value in the underworld economy? Combined with this, <laughs> what effects might the recent flood of night elf souls be causing? I mean, between the third war and the fourth wars, most notably the burning of Tildrassil, the volume of night elf deaths have gone from one to 11, pretty much in an instance. Obviously we don't have an answer on this. Uh, well, I think you guys more than I do, uh, about the stuff, but do you have any speculation or do you think it's just a non-issue likely to be ignored justifiably or not? Love your podcast and your musings. Uh, this one got me thinking lately that there would be, that it would be neat to hear what you think. Keep up the great work. It's much appreciated. And this is Ruhin or yeah, Ruin, uh, Zandalari this week, death Knight on garage. That's a that's a spicy meatball of one. Do you want to take a shot at it, Matt? Well, first up, <clears throat> ten thousand years is a long time, but in elf lifespan terms, it's like two lifetimes. It's not actually. It'd, it'd be like if someone made you live two hundred years instead of a hundred years. That would be pretty amazing, but it's not that big a deal in terms of how many night elves died versus would have died. Um. They weren't going to be dying a lot anyway. Plus, remember, their immortality wasn't immortality. It was agelessness. They weren't aging during that 10,000-year period. They still died. Like, for instance, uh, Valston, uh, oh, bloody heck, Staghelm. Valston Staghelm got ripped in half. So they had several wars during that period of time. They would have died during those wars. Not everybody, but quite a few of them. <clears throat> when that happened, their spirits would still travel to Ardenweald, most likely. So, did less of them die than would have otherwise? Yes. Was it literally none of them dying? No. Was it a, a massive downshift in the amount of them that would have died? Not really. Because, basically, you're just taking that 5,000-year lifespan and you're doubling it. Now, that's a big deal. Yes and no. In terms of... How many people died since the Night Elves still had several wars and conflicts during that period of time? Some of them were still dying. And their birth rate being what it is and their civilization being what it was, they also had a shitload of them die. Oops, sorry, am I bad? But I just gave Joe something to bleep. Um, <laughs> I'm not believing it. We're fine. <laughs> they would have had a bunch of people die during the War of the Ancients that otherwise wouldn't have died. So they front-loaded a huge burst of deaths 10,000 years ago. Then the death rate would have dropped significantly, although they still would have had deaths during the past 10,000 years. And then recently, a whole bunch of deaths again. So do I think it's going to be a major deal? No. I don't think that Night Elf souls are like you know treasured currency in the afterlife. Uh, I don't think that Ardenweald you know, sank or swam based on how many night elves showed up there. Um, I do think that culturally 
there will be some costs to, to be considered. Um, I think that there's definitely a case for, we know that the night elves aren't going where they're supposed to go. Nobody's going where they're supposed to go. Yeah. It's the whole crux especially, of this next expansion, yeah, especially with the burning of Telrassil. Those, those night elves souls would not have gone where they were supposed to go. So that won't have affected anything. Uh, that's in fact, the whole big central mystery of this next expansion is about what's actually happening to people. Why are they all going to the mall? How come they can't escape? So that sort of thing. I mean, lots of, but, but by the same token, lots of everybody died. I mean, nine tenths of the blood elves. I mean, the, before they were blood elves, nine tenths of the high elves died. What happened with those souls? Did they all just get reincarnated? Did they all just go to Ardenweald? Did they go somewhere else? Because the high elves left Calderai culture and abandoned the loon and went to the sun and, you know, were very arcane based. They still had a nature thing going on. I don't know. These are not things I have answers to, but I think you, you can't look at the 10,000 years and think that night elves weren't dying during that period of time. They just weren't aging to death, but every war they had, people died in it. Uh, you can ask Vandal Staghelm about that because he watched his son get ripped in half. Um, yep. So, it, it's I, don't, an, I don't think it's going to end up seeing that they went to Ardenweald and, and totally changed the way it was working or that the lack of them totally changed the way it was working. I think it would basically just be a dip. The interesting thing to me is this, this is actually a question that I've been kind of thinking about a little bit, not the whole thing, but specifically the economy of anima and how is an anima, uh, how is the power of a soul? How is the level of anima measured? Is it the years of the person lived? Is it how powerful they were? Was it the, the, the weight of the deeds of their life, et cetera, et cetera? Because I always wondered if, if every soul was just absolutely the same or if there was a difference there, if there were greater souls or lesser souls, because we do see that there are creatures that are potentially, I don't want to say reborn, but exist inside of uh, the Shadowlands, inside of these various realms that then come back. Look at the the ancients, right? That's where they regenerate. Some of these Loa, that's probably where they're going uh, and regenerating and come back. But while they're there, is their animal just thrown into the cycle? If so, how is that economy accounted for? Um, we know nothing of that. We absolutely don't. Like we we have some rough ideas that like Ardenweld is anima starved. Well, what does that even mean? Does that mean that they can't accomplish specific tasks, or is it because you know? They just the bank is running dry. If so, when the machine broke, when the machine of death broke, how long ago was that? How long did they have? You know, it, it's it's something that I, I'm hoping that we find out a little bit more of, like what is being brought, what it, what these souls actually bring uh, to the Shadowlands, how the anima is actually accounted for, because like you said, if, if somebody lives for 10,000 years, like a night elf soul, is that more powerful than a human soul in terms of anima where that human may live a hundred years? So I want to see more about that. Now, as far as what you're asking about, whether the night elves immortality uh, was proportionally greater, don't know. have no idea to that. Will we find out? Probably. We'll probably see if there's something going on there. It may be why that the Arden will like the ancients were able to come back as frequently as they were. Why certain things have a cycle of rebirth because 
maybe the souls that they did receive had enough anima to, to charge them up to do so. But I suspect we'll find out probably relatively early into Shadowlands. Moving on, we have Hi Lore Watchers. I submitted this lore game dev idea to the wonderful ladies at the Girls Gone Wild podcast, and they liked the idea so much that they straight up told me I had to put it in front of your collective geniuses. So here it goes. Uh, future of the factions. Some folk want peace, but that doesn't make for mass market entertainment in a polarized player base. But most folks agree they want to play with their friends. Some have proposed a neutral faction. The problem there is a third unique faction means adding one third more tech debt to every art asset, a third storyline that has to be written to every quest. I don't see developers practically going this route. Oddly, though, four factions would be less work. Split each faction into two, Hawkers and Doves, the Alliance and the Union of Lordaeron, the Horde and the Free People of Kalimdor. The names need work. The main two are unchanged and probably still warring. The doves of each side thematically are trying to retake the homes of the Night Elves, Gilneans, reclaim their lost honor, etc. Technically, both sides are still alliance or horde races, models, tile sets, quests, but they just use this new choice system BFA has uh, trialed to give favor to the two alternate groups of each side. The kicker, Alliance can rally and raid five man with other Alliance, uh, UOL, FPOK, and Horde can play with other Horde, FPOK, uh, UOL. Uh, only the two diehard groups are stuck to the way it is now. Most BFA and dealing with the afterlife might put things in new perspective for the warring groups. Who do you think you are? Who would you have leading the four factions? Look forward to your thoughts. And this is from Razorbug. That's uh, an interesting take on it, because I, I think that's something that people haven't really considered. Over the years, people I know have been asking for a third faction, but I think you're right. I think the tech debt of that would be a little bit too great, whereas something with Battle for Azeroth's choice system, even as limited as it was, expanding upon that for the individual factions and having sort of each faction split in the two might require less tech debt uh, and might actually be something a little more... Uh, player-friendly. What do you think, Matt? There's such a thing as effort that is not tech-based. You are you are multiplying by a factor of 1,000 the amount of lore work, the amount of writing to justify this. And I want you to really think about it. Who would be the leader of your alliance faction? Because that's the question you asked. Who would be the, the four faction leaders? Is Anduin Rin going to still be the leader of the Alliance? Because he sounds a lot more like your Union of Lordaeron, doesn't he? He sounds like a peacemaker. He's the kind of guy who would want to bring peace. He wants to bring... The, he wants everybody to basically get along. He wants to create a world where there's no need for wars between these factions. But if that's the case, if he's the head of that, who replaces him as the overall head of the Alliance? Does the you're basically basically setting up a situation where the alliance leadership would actually be the leadership of the splinter faction and the people who want to kill the horde still and want revenge for everything that's been done would become the leaders of the main alliance. So then you you'd need to say okay no so now we've got the alliance and the you know the the, the Avengers of Teldrassil we'll say. <clears throat> And the Avengers of Teldrassil is the more hostile faction instead of the less hostile faction. You can still do it that way, 
but again, now you're still having to come up with lore to justify why these groups stay together. Why are they not fighting each other? At what point can can Andu and Rin tell them what to do? And that's the thing. I think we're going to get something like that. But I think you, you're really going to have to look at just how much work this is actually going to be. Just because it doesn't require art assets to change as much and quest text to change as much doesn't mean it isn't going to require a massive amount of work. It's just a different kind of work. Um, I do think, straight up, I do think we're going to see some sort of storyline for, if not in Shadowlands, then after it, about the Alliance coming to terms with what it wants. And you're going to see people like like uh, Taronda and Gen taking that to Anduin and saying, look, you can't, things cannot continue the way they have been. There's absolutely going to be that. But in terms of... Uh, in terms of this idea, uh, I really don't. I don't think they'll ever be set up this formally. I don't think they're going to actually have it split up into four factions. I think they're just going to have inside a faction. They're going to have differences in terms of what each leader wants, in terms of what the people want. I, I don't disagree. Um, I love the idea of it, and in a perfect world, we'd have something like this, but. It, while it reduces, and, and we're not going to talk about the lore debt quite yet. I'll get to, I'll get to my my thoughts on that in a second. But the tech debt is still technically there because what you're asking for is a little bit of the I don't want to say the mercenary mode, but you're asking for that to play into it. Um, why not just leverage the mercenary mode entirely for that type of stuff, where you can, you know, instead of just doing the the pvp stuff like that maybe there's a way to expand that into uh pve stuff so that you could play with your friends and i understand that's sort of a big deal and this is a topic that has come up very very frequently especially with me because i'm i'm predominantly a horde player i have a lot of friends that are predominantly alliance side so we don't we can't help each other with stuff unless one of us rolls a character uh across factions and gets it leveled up and, and and then gets geared up enough that we can actually do stuff with each other. And, and that does sort of put a damper on that whole playing with friends thing a little bit. Uh, would I love to see a system in place that allows us to sort of transcend that? Absolutely. I absolutely would. Do I think it's going to happen? Probably not because again, tech debt, that that is a thing that is absolutely something to consider. The lore debt is actually something that a lot of people don't, talk about a lot either and we while we talk about the story and the lore of the game a whole ton you have to understand how many people contribute to that look at all the writers that have written books for this content whether it was you know Richard Knack, Christy Golden or any of the other extremely talented writers that they pull in for these books those books inform lore and story as much as the game itself does as much as the people that are building those quests and direction of the story inside of the game do well now you're you're adding sort of a complication to that now do i think we are going to see sort of sub factions within each the horde and the alliance i do i actually think matt's right on this one and that we are going to see you know that more war hawkish version of like alliance personnel and you're gonna have the more that are 
keeping the status quo. Same with the Horde. You're going to have people that still want to fight against the Alliance for the tragedy, for, for whatever perceived tragedy that they've suffered at the hands of them or will come to pass because we know Tehran's not slowing down and we don't know what she's going to do, but it's probably going to be bloody and within good reason. She's, you know, pound for a pound at this point. So you're going to have Horde that want to retaliate to that, and you're going to have Horde that don't want to retaliate to that. And then you're going to have, you still have Sylvanas loyalists running around, and that's the thing that hasn't been resolved yet. Like, we talked about this earlier in the episode, where you can sit in Orgrimmar, and you can see, like, NPCs calling other NPCs out as, you know, Sylvanas loyalists and being arrested and walked out in chains. Like, there are literally trails of people being led around Orgrimmar in chains. But what about player characters? We're the ones that made this choice. That hasn't been resolved or touched on at all. That still has to be something that happens at some point where if you're a player that chose to side with Sylvanas, well, you still go to Orgrimmar just fine. They don't know that. They don't know that you sided with her. But if you didn't, that's a whole other... It's like two separate stories that have almost no resolution they're going to have to deal with that as well. And that's already lore death that they're working on. So now you start adding in these extra things and it gets a little more, I don't want to say complicated, but how do you work it into the bigger story without diluting it? Right. Yeah. How many plates are you going to spin? Yeah. And and when every plate you spin has to have at least two states, it has to have plates still spinning or what happens when the plate don't spin no more? Where, where does it go from here? What's the payoff? Look at the um, the one that really comes to mind that has nothing to do with faction choice. Is did you take the did you get the eye? Did you complete the questing, get the eye from Yogg-Saron, and then did you choose to get it cleansed or not? And that's still going on. Like after if you've killed Yogg-Saron or whatever, there's dialogue from Nizoth. people who still have Nizoth. Sorry, there's dialogue from people who still have Nizoth's eye who are like, you know, why it, this is still here? What does it mean? You know what I'm saying? That there's, this is stuff that's going forward, and it, it, anything like that, if you, doing this this double, dual faction ideal, where you have basically an A state and a B state for every faction, like you'd have two factions, but each faction has has an A state and a B state. The A state is loyalist, and the B state is is non-loyalist, or you know aggressive versus non-aggressive. Those are st- you know, every time your character does something, they have to they will have to check that. They will have to determine. Okay, this person's in the, on the B path for everything, for like for like dozens of different stories. There's a lot to it. It's not that it's a bad idea. It's just that you have to really start thinking about what exactly do you want? Do you do you just want the ability to play with like people from other factions? Because quite frankly, I don't think that the people of Blizzard want that because they've rejected the easy way to do it time and again. The easy way to do it is simply to remove faction restrictions on grouping. You don't have to do anything lore-wise for that. You don't have to say that the Alliance and Horde are at peace now. You can just simply allow grouping across faction, and that's just it. They don't want to do that. They want to keep it part of the game. They want the faction divide to be there. So, therefore, if you're going to work in a situation where people from the I want to call it the friendly group, like the friendly version of each faction can group with each other and can group with the opposite faction. Why would they be? uh, See, this is my problem. If you're a member of the horde group that is loyalist, you should never be able to group with anybody 
from the alliance whether or not they're loyalist. Does that make sense? Yeah, not only so that, should, but like, how is how would those groups internally feel about it too? Because then you have yeah, to. That's it, the other side of it. Like, are board, you a traitor? Yeah, are you a traitor at that point? Are we having another situation where they're you're at civil war with each other over that? So like, yeah, it, it, it gets complicated. And it's again not it's not that it's a bad idea. And yes, I would absolutely love the ability to play with my friends cross faction, and maybe one day Blizzard will relent on the they don't want that to ever be a thing, which. You know, they've said many, many, many times, especially because they do have mechanics that they've already invested in in the game that could work for it. Like, again, the before mentioned mercenary mode, it's a thing they could do. Will they? No clue. Uh, We have, I think, one last question. I think we're going to end it out with today. And I think this goes back to the Forsaken. Um, This is from Syncline, one of our Patreon supporters. And this is from Discord. So a Forsaken goes to Shadowlands. Is he still an unholy crime against nature, or does he finally feel he's at home somewhere? Are living beings wandering into Shadowlands unnatural horrors on the scale that undead are on Azeroth? That is a very good question. What do you think, Matt? I don't think that a living person going to the Shadowlands is is the same as an undead out in the world, because... The, the undead are from here and then they die. And then instead of staying where they're supposed to be when they're dead, they come back against the order. There's nothing in the natural order that says you can't go to the land of the dead. You're just not supposed to be able to. Does that make sense? It's a slightly different thing. Um, but that being said, I do think it's interesting to wonder, do Forsaken feel at peace when they're there? Do they feel whole or do they feel even worse? Because when we go there, we're still in our bodies which means that your forsaken when he goes there isn't free. He or she is still trapped in their body, the rotting, decaying body that should not have a spirit in it. And now you're in the realm where you're supposed to go, but you're still you. You're still stuck inside this thing. And keep in mind that when you die in the Shadowlands, it's completely different. Like that mm-hmm. doesn't have the same system that when you die in normal WoW. Things are different about that. So I feel like people are locked into their bodies. And it's it's interesting to think about how that's going to work out. I don't I don't have an answer to it. I don't, but it's interesting to think about. Like, what about Death Knights? I was just going to bring that up. How do Death Knights, you know, feel when they when they go there? Uh, is it a bridge state? The Shadowlands we go to, they're not the only places there either. Like, are we going to see more lands in in the Shadowlands? Are we going to like? Is there going to be like a? For lack of a better word, like a like a Nazjatar or or um, Mechagon type island type 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 zone, like some you know we've we've seen a lot of post release zones over the past few years. Um, we got Timeless Isle in, in Mist of Pandaria. We got um, Tanan Jungle in, in Warlords of Draenor. We, we've we've seen you know there were two of them in in uh in Legion, there was the broken shore. And then we, after the broken shore, we got Argus. Argus had three zones attached to it. And in this expansion, we saw both Nazjatar and Mechagon as new separate zones. So we could very well, there could be more zones coming after we get into Shadowlands, after we've been there and, and made alliances and, and gotten ourselves our soul link and all that stuff. We could end up going to even more places. 
yeah. what the relationship of those places are to our world. Is it a deeper level of death? Can you be more dead? Um, I mean, I don't think living people are undead or undead equivalent when they go to the land of the dead, but they're definitely not supposed to be there. And that's an interesting way to look at it. You know, you are not, you know, everyone thinks, you know, the, the fact that you can leave the maw is because you're not dead. And that's, that's interesting. I, I don't know how it's going to work out, but I do think it would be fun to, if they really actually went and played around with that concept of, you know, you know, you don't belong here. And for Forsaken, you should belong here, but you still don't. That's just, oof, that's awful to think about. Yeah, and I'm, I'm wondering how torturous it's going to be for the Forsaken going there and realizing that, you know, they could have been at peace, but yet here's just another thing, the reminder of we're stuck in these rotting bodies. But then I was started thinking really about Death Knights because Death Knights are how we get to the Shadowlands in the first place, right? That's that's what they told us. We don't know how that works out, but it probably has something to do with how Death Knights are created and the fact that they are a living spirit in an undead body, so to speak. Uh, and then I started thinking about like Terran Gorefiend or Terangor when he was a orc spirit shoved into an undead human husk. How does that work out if you go to the Shadowlands? How does that uh, how is that ledger balanced? There's a lot of weird stuff that could happen there, but I, I, I am curious in particular to see how the Forsaken react to seeing these places. Like imagine a Forsaken choosing to go to Bastion. What does that mean for them? You know, or these these Forsaken priests that have been in pain wielding the light to do good uh, with their second chance at, at life or their cursed existence, however you want to put it. How does that how does going to a place that very clearly is bathed in the light, how does that affect them? Does that hurt them? Does that cause them constant pain? Does that remind them of the fact that they are not whole? And I think there is a lot that they can do with it. There's a lot of story threads that they can pull on there. And I think that they will. And I think in particular, it's going to center around Kalia a little bit because she is an abnormality. She is a creature created through the entwining of light and darkness. Essentially, she is as close to what we are as an undead can be because she's not living. She's not dead. And we're told that we have the power of, of void and light inside of each of our souls. She's essentially the embodiment of that. She is undeath and life twined into one. So how is that going to react? Is that going to be something that they, that's how they start exploring, bringing the forsaken into the new future where they find a point of balance where Kalia learns how to replicate what happened to her, maybe in the Shadowlands, maybe instead of feeling at peace, they learn how to feel whole again, because that's one of the motifs that the forsaken have had throughout all of the years that we've had them is not so much that they're these torturous souls, these entities that are, are constantly not feeling at home, but they're incomplete. They've lost pieces of themselves. They're cut off from life. They're cut off from their loved ones. They're cut off from existence as they knew it. And that's an isolating experience. Even when you went to Undercity before everything else happened, they were trying to have a normal quote unquote life like they had in Lordaeron. They couldn't, it wasn't quite the same. I mean, but they tried. So is this going to be a way where they go to Shadowlands where they start seeing that path to becoming whole again? That I think is more likely to happen. 
So with that, we're going to call it, I think, done. Uh, Blizzard Watch is made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash blizzardwatch. Your continued support means this podcast site and community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, a better chance at having your questions answered on our podcast or the queue, and an ads-free site experience. Uh, if you are interested in, in going through any of the books, because we did talk about them, uh, you can for you, the listeners of Blizzard Watch, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their services. Uh, you can talk, check out Before the Storm, War Crimes, or any of the other fantastic Warcraft novels that are out there. Uh, yeah, yeah. You can, Do we know if the new one's going to be on Audible? I would imagine so. Yeah, they have that one's coming, so keep that in mind. The tie-in, the lead-in to Shadows, uh, to Shadowlands, Shadows Rising is coming out fairly soon, so... It's something to keep in, in consideration. Uh, you can download many of Blizzard's titles as well as thousands of others at blizzardwatch.com slash audible. We'll finish it off with a quick final thought. So let's go back to the the faction divide. If tech and lore debt was not an issue, is this an idea you could be behind with having the cross-factional play? And if so, in a perfect world, how would you, Matt Rossi, set that up? What would be the impetus for it? I'm not really, I'm not compelled by the idea of the factions breaking up into more factions. Um, I mean, we had that in Warcraft 3, and I kind of always felt like going to just two was a step up from having, like, you know, Undead, Night Elves, Humans, and Orcs as, like, separate groups. I like having more groups, I like having more people who can play together. I just, I honestly wish they would just get rid of the faction divide. I really do. I've always thought so. Um, I don't really know how I would set it up, to be honest. I think I would just simply drop it and have the, the factions continue to be antagonistic and players could just ignore it. That would just be the way I'd do it. But, yeah, I, if they're going to, if they, you know, it's not like it's a bad idea, the, 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 the four factions thing. It just doesn't really grab me. And, you know, that's just me being me. Yeah, and for me, I think I would I would honestly keep the factions mostly as they are, but I would maybe thematically and lore-wise, I think they've already established that there are individuals within each faction that will interact with each other, that do like each other. I mean, joke aside in Legion, we did have that that human that, that spent a lovely night with a high mountain tauren uh, in the mountains there and... We know that they can definitely interact in a positive manner elsewhere. So maybe something gets introduced where you as a player can just choose to ignore the war portion of it as much as possible and have your own moments where maybe my high mountain torrent can hang out with my friend that happens to be a gnome. And maybe that's how they do it, where they just really bring that system, that mercenary system into play where there's just no restriction on it so that if we need to pull somebody in for this raid encounter, great. And I also think thematically, personally, it would fit better with some of these big sweeping battle raids that we've been having in the past where, like, if the Alliance and the Horde are working together to fight against a common enemy, to me it makes sense that sometimes those armies would mingle. Like, it wouldn't necessarily be all one faction or the other. Sometimes those units, when they're caught behind enemy lines, they'd have no choice but to work together. And maybe raid groups could help represent a little bit of that sort of reality to me. Who knows, maybe in the future, um, but I would like to see factions sort of kept whole, 
but maybe on the smaller level give players sort of the the justification or the reason that they could maybe cross those faction divides and play with their friends. I think it would only do good things for the longevity of the game. But that's all we have for this week. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Uh, and again, if you have any questions, please make sure to send them to podcast at blizzardwatch.com or hit us up on Patreon uh, in our Discord server, our Patreon and Q questions, and let us know what you want us to answer. And we will see you in one week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.